regulators. We regulate any stealing of his property. We're damn good, too. But you can't be any geek off the street. You gotta be handy with the steal, if you know what I mean. Earn your keep. Regulators! Mount up. It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warren G was on the streets, trying to consume some skirts for the E, so I could get some phones. Rolling in my ride, chilling all alone. Just hit the east side of the LBC on a mission trying to find Mr. Warren G. Seen a car full of girls, ain't no need to tweak. All of you search know what's up with 213. So I hooked select on 21 and Lewis, some brothers shooting dice. So I said, let's do this. I jumped out the rock and said, what's up? Some brothers pulled some gas, so I said, I'm since these girls peeping me, I'ma glide and swerve These hookers looking so hard, they straight hit the curve Want to bigger, better things than some horny tricks I see my homie and some suckers all in his mix I'm getting jacked, I'm breaking myself I can't believe they taking more and 12 They took my rings, they took my Rolex I looked at the brother, said, damn, what's next? They got my homie hemmed up and they all around Can't none of them see him if they going straight down for pound They wanna come up real quick before they start to clown I best pull out my strap and lay them busters down They got guns to my head, I think I'm going down I can't believe it's happening in my own town If I had wings, I would fly, let me contemplate I glance in the cut and I see my homie Nate Sixteen in the clip and one in the hole Nate Dog is about to make some bodies turn cold Now they dropping and yelling, it's a tad bit late Nate Dog and Warren G had to regulate Switching my mind back into freak mode If you won't skirt, sit back and observe I just left a gang of those over there on the curb Now they got the freaks and that's a known fact Before I got jacked, I was on the same track Back up, back up, cause it's on N-A-T-E and me The woman to the G Just like I thought, they were in the same spot In need of some desperate head But Nate Dogg and the G-Child Were in need of something else Sexy as hell, I said, ooh, I like your size She said my car's broke down and just sing real nice Would you let me ride? I got a car full of girls and it's going real swell The next stop is the east side
Hello and welcome. It is episode 17 of the podcast for all time. It is Monday, February 28th at 12.52 p.m. And uh, today we're going to be covering a few things. Number one, we're going to be looking at a book here. Title is Addiction by Design. Machine Gambling in Las Vegas. Written by Natasha Dow Schul. And this is a book that covers a lot of topics, but it covers all the topics relevant to today's uh, brain fascination with uh, chemicals The business world's fascination with understanding all the inner workings of our brain and the chemicals that fire off and give us pleasure and using that information, that science, to dictate how we behave. And I believe that this book is a, although it was written in 2012, will is and will be a foundational text for understanding in our future the compulsive behaviors that uh, money will bring closer and closer to our face until we are unable to resist it. But let me go ahead and start, and maybe you'll see where I'm going. I don't think I made too much of a jump of logic here. So I'm going to begin. This is uh, just the introduction. Gives you a little flavor for what we're dealing with here. Mapping the Machine Zone. On a weekday evening in the fall of 1999, Molly and I sit at the floor-length windows of a room high in the south tower of, Main St- of the Main Street Station Hotel and Casino in downtown Las Vegas. Blinking brightly below us is a four-block stretch of Fremont Street, the city's former central artery of casino life. At the top of Fremont begins the long, flickering, perpendicular... Excuse me. I'll fix the gain there. There we go. Blinking brightly below us is a four-block stretch of Fremont Street, the city's former central artery of casino life. At the top of Fremont begins the long, flickering perpendicular of Las Vegas Boulevard, otherwise known as The Strip, a corridor of commercial gambling that extends for five miles in a southwesterly direction until it reaches the end of the city and fades into gas stations, billboards, and desert. As the sky grows darker, pockets of light flare up in the relatively dim areas to either side of this infamous thoroughfare, marking off strip gambling establishments that cater to a burgeoning local clientele. Molly's frequent video poker play at these establishments has earned her a complimentary stay at Main Street Station. Her 11-year-old son, Jimmy, lies lengthwise on the bed behind us his gaze riveted to the television screen as his hands work the controls of the PlayStation console his mother has rented from the front desk to occupy him while we talk. Mom, it's the Vegas game, says Jimmy from the bed. You drive all around Vegas and try to play games. Oh, great. That's all we need, she responds. I'm going to take one more pass of that. Oh, great. That's all we need, she responds. At her first job, when she was not much older than Jimmy, Molly dispensed chains for slot machines on a U.S. military base where her father, an Air Force officer, had been stationed. She now works as a hotel reservationist at the MGM Grand, the largest mega resort in Las Vegas and the second largest in the world. A gargantuan rectangle of green glass modeled after Oz, the MGM glows in the distance as we talk. Mom, I won, Jimmy interjects. And 15 minutes later, with some excitement, 
Mom, I already lost 95 bucks. I tell him he should be careful, says Molly. He might end up with a problem. But he doesn't listen. He plays video games constantly. He's just zoned into them. She pauses. Of course, I don't set a very good example. Molly recounts how her play began. Reminding you, this is 1999 when this particular essay is being written. So it is a PS1. He's playing one of those uh, dime a dozen, uh, you know, what was... uh, blasting the uh, bargain bin, those casino games. He's playing one of those. I have to look up directly like which one lets you drive around Vegas, uh, but I know that there's more than one of those. So, Molly recounts how her play began, and of course, how it escalated. It started soon after she moved to Las Vegas with her third husband in the 1980s when he taught her how to play video poker on a miniature handheld machine. I became hooked on that amazing little machine, and then I graduated to the real thing. Short stints at video poker on weekend visits to casinos turned into sessions of hours and then days. Her financial expenditure grew in step with her play to a point where she was spending entire paychecks over two-day binges at the machines. I even cashed in my life insurance for more money to play, she tells me. When I ask Molly if she is hoping for a big win, she gives a short laugh in a dismissive wave of her hand. In the beginning, there was excitement about winning, she says, but the more I gambled, the wiser I got about my chances. Wiser, but also weaker and less able to stop. Today, when I win, and I do win from time to time, I just put it back in the machines. The thing people never understand is that I'm not playing to win. Why then does she play? To keep playing. To keep... uh, Why then does she play? To keep playing. To stay in that machine zone where nothing else matters. And I think uh, the machine zone which you'll see as we go on a little further, the machine zone is absolutely, most certainly, that hypnagogic state, um, which you enter when you're doing anything um, athletic that you have a lot of experience doing, playing a musical instrument, uh, when you're, you know, playing, you've been playing WoW for two, three hours, four hours, and you're in the zone, you're completely consumed, you're pressing all your hotkeys without even thinking about it, you're, like, optimizing your... um, your DPS and trying to get your cycles like perfect. And, and that that's the zone when you're, you know, you've been playing uh, dark souls or I don't know, Elden ring. And you've, you've been two hours without dying and you've, you've saved up everything that you can just to like feel that certain way. That's exactly what we're talking about. Why then does she play to keep playing, to stay in that machine zone? where nothing else matters. I ask Molly to describe the machine zone. She looks out the window at the colorful movement of lights, her fingers playing on the tabletop between us. It's like being in the eye of a storm, is how I describe it. Your vision is clear on the machine in front of you, but the whole world is spinning around you, and you can't really hear anything. You aren't really there. You're with the machine, and that's all you're with. A few months after speaking with Molly in Main Street Station's South Tower, I found myself in the midst of another conversation about the zone. This time, I was standing in the back of a packed, windowless room in the labyrinthine basement of the Las Vegas Convention Center, where a panel of representatives from the gambling industry had gathered from around the country to speak on the profit-promising future of machine gambling. Echoing at Molly's wish to stay in the machine zone, they spoke of gamblers' desire for time-on-device, or TOD. 
an evolving repertoire of technological capabilities was facilitating this desire. On these newer products, they can really get into that zone, remarked a game developer from a top manufacturing company. Like Molly, the industry panelists were invested in the zone state and its machinery. The panel I attended was held during the World Gaming Congress and Expo, now called the Global Gaming Expo, or G2E. The premier annual trade show for the gambling industry. See figure I want. Yes, there's an inset photo of the Global Gaming Exposition. And considering that it is, in fact, the exact same location as E3, imagine looking at any photo of E3 from, I don't know, that head up to the ceiling kind of view where you're looking at all the different numbered aisles and stuff like that. It's that, but um, it says Global Gaming Expo instead of Nintendo or Sony. That's basically the exact same thing. Same convention center. The panel I attended was held during the World Gaming Congress Expo, now called G2E, premier annual trade show for the industry. In 2007, a record 30,000 attendees convened at G2E to take stock of the industry's latest products and applications, from video game graphics to ergonomic consoles, surround sound acoustics to marketing schemes, plastic, plastic press buttons to player tracking systems. Equipment manufacturing industry giants like International Gaming Technology, IGT, Bally Technologies, and WMS Gaming occupied the largest and flashiest of the 520 to 750 booths that crowd each year into G2E's 300,000 square feet of convention space. The attention at G2E, a convention journalist wrote in 2005, gravitates towards one essential product, the slot machine. G2E is where the evolution of slot technology has been witnessed. The one-armed bandits of yesteryear were mechanical contraptions involving coin slots, pull handles, and spinning reels. Today's standard gambling machines are complex devices assembled on a digital platform out of 1,200 or more individual parts. Game design is a process of integration, assemblage, as one game developer told me. This process involves up to 300 people, including scriptwriters, graphic artists, marketeers, mathematicians, and mechanical, video, and software engineers, not to mention designers of auxiliary components like touchscreens, bill validators, and machine cabinets. Modern slot machines are rarely the work of one company, read the blurb, for a 2009 G2E panel. They are symphonies of individual technologies that come together to create a single experience. Reminds me of uh, the operatic construction of a modern software video game just with uh, one-off hardware to attach to each title. The gambling experience has evolved in step with technological innovation. Once a relatively straightforward operation in which players bet a set amount on the outcome of a single play, uh, pay line, today machine gambling begins with a choice among games whose permutations of odds, stake, stake size, and special effects are seemingly endless. Instead of inserting coins into a slot as in the past, players are more likely to insert paper money, barcoded paper tickets, or plastic cards with credit stored on chips or magnetic stripes. To activate the game, they no longer pull a lever, but instead press a button or touchscreen. Denomination of play can vary from one cent to one hundred dollars, and players can choose to bet from one to as many as one hundred excuse me, from one to as many as one thousand coin credits per game. On or above the play area, which typically features a video screen or three-dimensional reels behind glass, pay tables indicate the number of credits to be awarded in the event that certain symbols or cards appear together. To the right, a digital credit meter displays the number of credits remaining in the machine. 
Linked via telecommunication systems to a central server, the machines also perform data gathering and marketing functions for the casino. Very important. I'm adding an editor's note there. Critical nodes in the larger network system of the casino rather than standalone units, they have become, quote, become the central nervous system of the casino. An industry representative remarked in 2007. And without going to the footnote here uh, for the quote, I can assume that they were referring to uh, user telemetry or customer telemetry, I should, I should say, patron telemetry. They're wanting to know everything about opportunity, selection, choice, and they're going to use every single bit of information they can extract from every single machine, frequency, selection of machine, location of machine, selection based on location, time spent on machine, uh, individual users per machine. That's really what those cards and, um, and we'll get into like the membership programs and stuff too. But really all that information is the same kind of information that's extracted um, very similarly into great profit now in the video game industry, especially by companies like Activision Blizzard and, and companies in that size. Um, I'm sure Microsoft will continue it after the purchase, but realistically you're talking about a mass data gathering program. <clears throat> and really uh, everything in video games right now from the profit perspective which drives of course everything in the industry is completely driven from or driven rather from uh machine gambling in this entire system from cash shops and um your base well cash shops would be your basic example like uh fortnite where you're buying skins and and whatever but also to the extent of um literally tracking what you're looking at for how long and then making a determination in an algorithm when serving you up sales content to get you exactly in front of your face at the right time when you have the right amount of money in your pocket, exact on average, to buy exactly the thing that they're showing you. It's manipulative. I mean, it's manipulative, but it's also straight up marketing. Following every bit of research that they've grabbed from this kind of information, this kind of research on machine gambling machines extends psychologically to almost every consumer decision that you'll make. They're taking marketing, they're taking isolating you as a consumer from other products, they're con using convincing psychology, they're using sounds and images to create tunnel vision, and essentially they're taking, the, they're taking all of that, they're applying it to already the functional elements of the slot machine, or even just again, a hand of blackjack, which you can play in video format on the same kind of machine too, or any kind of basic, you know, 52 card deck uh, game. You can play them forever without looking a person in the face who may or may not have a good uh, <laughs> poker face at uh, making you feel good or bad or anything about uh, staying at the table for too long. You're just going to sit there, zone in, slot down, and uh, you know, slap down your credits like you're a kid with a gift card buying Fortnite skins. I mean, it's, it's essentially the same exact thing. Except at least, I mean, even with Fortnite, you don't even have the ability to, like, potentially make any <laughs> I don't know. I am off on a wild diatribe, but that's how I feel about um, how this is associated. And I'll, I'll continue, and you'll see more where I'm getting at. It's not that much of a stretch at all. Um, the one-armed bandits of yesteryear or mechanical transactions. One more time. The one-armed bandits of yesteryear were mechanical contraptions involving coin slots, pull handles, and spinning reels. Today's standard gambling machines are complex devices, assembled on a digital platform out of 1,200 or more individual parts. Game design is a process of integration or assemblage. They are symphonies of individual technologies that come together to create a single experience. 
The gambling experience has leveled up in step with technological innovation. Once a rel relatively straightforward operation, which players set a put a set amount on the outcome of a single pay line, today machine gambling begins with a choice of games whose permutations of odds, stake size, and special effects are seemingly endless. Let me continue. Until the mid-1980s, green felt table games such as Blackjack and Craps dominated casino floors while slot machines huddled on the sidelines, serving to occupy the female companions of quote-unquote real gamblers. Often placed along hallways or near elevators and reservation desks, rarely with stools or chairs in front of them, the devices occupied transitional spaces rather than gambling destinations. By the late 1990s, however, they had moved into key positions on the casino floor and were generating twice as much revenue as all live games, quote, unquote, put together. In the aisles and meeting rooms of the G2E, it became common to hear gambling machines referred to as the cash cows, the golden geese, and the workhorses of the industry. Frank J. Ferenkopf, Jr., president of the American Gaming Association, the commercial interest lobby that sponsors the annual expo, estimated that in 2003, over 85% of industry profits came from machines. So in 2003, this man, who is the president of the American Gaming Association, who wouldn't be a little... He has no motivation to lie about this. In fact, he has more motivation to... I don't know, preserve the balance of casino game structure to say, like, we still have table games. But, I mean, he's saying that in 2003, 85, over 85% of profits came from machines. It is the slot machine that drives the industry today. That's incredible. Several factors contributed to the dramatic reversal of slots once lowly status in the gaming economy. Relatively unburdened by the taint of vice as a result of their association with arcade gaming, women, and the elderly, they played a key role in the spread of commercialized gambling in the 1980s and 90s as recession-stricken stakes, whose federal funding had been cut by the Reagan-Bush administration, sought new ways to garner revenue without imposing taxes. The low-stakes devices fit comfortably with the redefinition of gambling as gaming by industry spokespeople and state officials who hoped to sway public endorsement of the activity as a form of mainstream consumer entertainment rather than a form of moral failing or predatory entrapment. Don't let that one hang. The growing consumer familiarity with screen-based interaction that accompanied the rise of the personal computer and electronically mediated entertainment, such as video games, further facilitated the cultural normalization of machine gambling. Meanwhile, the ongoing incorporation of digital technology into machine gambling altered the player experience in subtle but significant ways, broadening their market appeal. Gambling regulations were revised in lockstep with technological innovation, sanctioning its application to slots. Hmm. Since the early 1980s, when machine revenue surpassed table revenues for the first time, the ascendance of machines in the culture and economy of American gambling has continued unabated. The devices are now permitted in 41 states, up from 31 in 2000, and are under consideration by others as this book goes to press in 2012, which now I'm pretty sure you can put them pretty much wherever you want under certain restrictions. Um, you're going to do a lot of, like, uh, video lotto. Um, you may remember Ray and Trailer Park Boys uh, becoming addicted to the video lotto machines. I mean, that's, that's uh, really the biggest cultural representation of, like, video lotto addiction or, like, video you know, um, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's like video gambling, but, um, 
I haven't seen like uh, video gambling addiction laid out so much in fiction other than that, actually. It's funny. Um, the first time this ever occurred to my mind was the Louis Theroux documentary about gambling. There's a, um, a woman he followed around, or f- a couple, actually, I believe, or maybe more than a couple characters in the Vegas area, I believe. No, maybe it was Reno, actually, um, and followed their struggle with uh, gambling addiction and God damn, I never forgot that. And as soon as I saw this book, it's what um, kind of popped it back up in my head. I needed to understand and um, learn about what's going on. And then learned a little bit more about how this is creeping into every one of our lives who plays even a little bit of video games. I'll just repeat this section. The growing consumer familiarity with screen-based interaction that accompanied the rise of the personal computer and electronically mediated entertainment such as video games further facilitated the cultural normalization of machine gambling. Meanwhile, the ongoing incorporation of digital technology into gambling machines altered the player experience in subtle but significant ways, broadening their market appeal. Gambling regulations were revised in lockstep with technological innovation, sanctioning its application to slots. I would also say that this same process was applied to video games, whereas almost no regulation was taken place on its rise from no ca- from horse armor to where we are today. So many steps took place and zero regulation basically has followed it. I'm not necessarily proposing specific regulation, but uh, the fact that there is zero regulation over an industry that has multiple times been called out um, (laughs) uh, in Congress publicly uh, and then left completely untouched in any other way than just asking a couple questions. It's... Since the early 1980s, when machine revenue surpassed table revenues for the first time, the ascendance of machines and culture in the economy of American gambling has continued unabated. The device now permitted in 41 states, uh, from 31. Mm-hmm. In 1996, there was 500,000 devices in the United States. In 2008, the count had reached nearly 870,000, not including an underground market of unauthorized machines in bars, taverns, truck stops, bowling alleys, restaurants, and across the country, or devices engineered to circumvent restrictions by fitting state Definitions for bingo, amusement machines, or sweepstakes games. And those are the ones where you'd basically, um, let's say you play the lotto or, you know, whatever. You're playing like a mini lotto or you're playing uh, slots or you're playing like a card game and a machine. And maybe it's giving you like uh, tickets or something to trade in for a prize, which then can also be immediately traded in for cash, perhaps at a pawn shop or a nearby store um or even just inside i mean there's 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 many ways to turn the trinket item you get into cash i mean a lot of them use uh gift cards as a way and then there's you know obviously you can just convert that into cash i mean it's essentially pushing the money laundering onto the the prize winner um fascinating little uh loopholes that they've got around Bo Bernard, native Las Vegan and sociology professor at the University of Nevada, has described the effects of machine gambling spread as a kind of technological deforestation of table games. Right now, he told an audience at the International Conference on Gambling and Risk-Taking in 2000. I would love someone get me tickets to the International Conference on Gambling and Risk-Taking in 2022. I want to go take that risk. Somewhere out there in a casino, a blackjack table is being sawed down to make room for machines. Extending the metaphor, his former mentor, Robert Hunter, a well-known Las Vegas psychologist of gambling addiction, has compared the spread of gambling machines to the insistent creep of kudzu, 
The ground-covering vine that wreaked havoc on the ecosystem of rural of the rural south and was imported from Japan during the Great Depression. Extremely edible. Survival of the fittest, remarked a casino floor manager at the Four Queens, a downtown casino not far from the one where I spoke to Molly. And he stood watching a group of uniformed men carry defunct tables out a back door and roll in shiny new slot machines to take their places. Soon gamblers would be seated before them, and some, like Molly, would be playing for hours and even days at a time. Resident Gambling. The Rise of Repeat Play. This book explores the significance of the meteoric expansion of modern machine gambling over the past two decades in the United States through an examination of the relationship between the changing technological configuration of gambling activities and the changing experience of gamblers. Although, such an inquiry could plausibly be set in any number of jurisdictions where the activity is legal and readily available, Las Vegas offers a particularly illuminating backdrop. In the early 1980s, cultural critic Neil Postman said that one had only tried to look to Las Vegas to understand America. In the 1990s, casino tycoon Steve Wynn turned this pronouncement around, remarking that Las Vegas exists because it is a perfect reflection of America. Since then, journalists and academics alike have debated whether the rest of the country is becoming more lo like Las Vegas or if, alternatively, Las Vegas is becoming more like the rest of the country. Some have called the city the New Detroit to signal its status as the capital of the post-industrial economy, while others have pointed out that Detroit itself is now home to the popular Motor City Casino. Running alongside the debate over whether Las Vegas is a mirror or a model for America as the question of whether to view the city as a shape-shifting marvel of human inventiveness and technological sophistication or as a dystopic, uh, as dystopic instant, <laughs> instantiate, instantiation of consumer capitalism. And I would say that it is a dystopic instantiate. It's a dystopic example of consumer capitalism. That's what I would say. Whatever its relationship to the culture at large, it is clear that Las Vegas has become a vast laboratory in urban, as urban historians Hal Rothman and Mike Davis wrote in 2002, where giant corporations, themselves changing amalgams of capital from different sectors, are experimenting with every possible combination of entertainment, gaming, mass media, and leisure. In the Las Vegas laboratory, machine gambling figures both as a means and an end of experimentation. A critical historical event in the rise of machine-based gambling economy was the passage of the Corporate Gaming Act by the Nevada State Legislature in 1969, allowing corporations to purchase and build casinos without subject subjecting every stockholder to the thorough background checks formerly required, allowing people with dirty money to sneak into the boardrooms and then use that to benefit uh, the casino, wash some cash etc. The new ease of raising capital within the broader context of a growing service economy encouraged Wall Street to take an active interest in the city. Las Vegas experienced an unprecedented period of growth as casinos shifted hands from organized crime to publicly traded corporations, organized crime, metamorphizing into a hub for mass market vacationing and con conventioneering. Throughout the 1990s, over a period that was often called the Disneyification of Las Vegas, one corporate-financed, corporate-run mega-resort after another was constructed along the Strip. Tourist visitation to the city increased fourfold between 1980 and 2008, reaching 40 million people. This boom in business drew job seekers in droves, and the local population more than quadrupled over the same period, from 450,000 to 2 million. That is from 
1980 to 2008. Incredible population growth over just a period of uh, 30-ish years. Either directly or indirectly, most residents rely on the gambling industry for their livelihood. For its part, the industry relies on residents not only for its workforce, but also, increasingly, for revenue. A full two-thirds of those who reside in metropolitan Los Angeles... A full two-thirds of those who reside in metropolitan Las Vegas gamble. Of those, one study finds, two-thirds gamble heavily. So that's two-thirds of two-thirds. Heavily. Defined as twice a week or more for four hours or longer per session, or moderately one to four times a month for up to four hours per session. It's a lot of gambling. I mean, for anyone. Known in the industry as, quote, Repeat players, this is an industry term, so I'm not going to quote that again, but repeat players, as opposed to tourists or transient players, that's us, they typically gain, uh, <laughs> I hope, they typically, although you do you, they typically gamble at neighborhood casinos that offer easy parking, childcare facilities, and other amenities. Like Molly, nearly 82% of local gamblers are members of loyalty clubs, such as station casinos, boarding pass, such as station casinos, Boarding pass, carrying player cards that document volume of their play and reward them accordingly with free meals, free rooms, and other perks. They also play at gas stations, supermarkets, drugstores, car washes, and other local outlets that have inspired the term convenience gambling. Sounds great. Our local players are very discriminating, observed a slot manager in one of the venue. Mm. Observed a slot manager at one venue among uh, popular among residents. They know what they want, and they're here five to seven days a week. Sounds healthy. What local players want is machines, and this preference has closely tracked the evolving appeal of slot machine technology. While only 30% of residents identified machines as the preferred form of gambling in 1984, just 10 years later, in 1994, the figure had sharply risen to 78%. That's incredible. That's a, that's a market revolution. Generating impressive revenues for gambling establishments through the collective steady repetition of their play, low rolling local machine gambling. Excuse me. Low. I'm going to start again. Generating impressive revenues for gambling establishments throughout the collective steady repetition of their play, low rolling local machine gamblers displaced high rolling tourist table gamblers as the heavyweights of the gambling scene in Las Vegas. Amazing. I mean, that means all the glitz and glamour of the big high-dollar rollers, and realistically that they're like just a tiny little slice, 10 to 15% max of, of the world out there. I mean, that means really like when you think about Vegas, you should think of slots almost exclusively. I mean, it seems like the card stuff is just a little tiny. I mean, it's nothing. Each individual game broken up would be like, I mean, craps is probably like the biggest one, right, For I imagine for table games because it's like, well, let's be pretty obvious. It's kind of, you just throw money down and see what happens but anyway what local players want is machines and this preference has closely tracked the mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is machine city a cocktail waitress remarked as she led me through an aisle of gambling devices at the palace station casino in 1999 that year at the industry's annual meeting las vegas locals were frequently acknowledged as the most mature in quotes of domestic machine markets some spoke of the city as an experimental barometer for the future, hmm. speculating that the rest of the nation would f follow its model. 
seven years later, by which point the Station Casinos franchise had blossomed into 13 properties, was capturing nearly 90% of its gambling revenue from machine play by local gamblers. The signs were auspicious. We're seeing more and more people coming to the Strip looking for mature product, said one executive. They're coming from California, the Midwest, and New York, where they're playing on a more regular basis. We're definitely seeing the trend for repeat play. As states across the country push to legalize or expand existing machine gambling to cope with the financial challenges of the current economic downturn, a 2012 economic downturn as of publishing, and as gambling equipment manufacturers pursue new markets for their products, this trend is growing. Yes, absolutely. Let me look at the time here. 37 minutes? Hmm. Yeah, I'll continue a little bit more. Games as Cultural Clues. The French sociologist Roger Calloway, author of Man, Play, and Games, believed that games carried clues to the basic character of a culture. It is not absurd to try diagnosing a civilization in terms of the games that are especially popular there. He wrote in 1958. That is a famous quote. And I f- should read that book as foundational information for this. You should too. should also learn how to <laughs> pronounce his name. Kai, I'll say. Nope. Kylo argued that one could make a cultural diagnosis by examining games combination of the following four elements of play. Agon, or competition, L.A., or chance, mimesis, or simulation, and illinx, or vertigo. Modern cultures, he claimed, were distinguished by games involving a tension between Agon and Elia. Competition and chance. The former demanding an assertion of will, and the latter demanding a surrender to chance. The tension is at the heart of cultural diagnosis made by the American sociologist Irving Goffman in 1967 based on his ethnographic study of gambling in Las Vegas where he worked as a blackjack dealer and was eventually promoted to pit boss. Goffman regarded gambling as the occasion for character contests in which players could demonstrate their courage, integrity, and composure in the face of contingency. By offering individuals the opportunity for heroic engagements with fate, gambling fulfilled an existential need for action or consequential activity in an increasingly bureaucratic bureaucratic society, although bureaucratic might fit it, uh, that deprived its citizens of the opportunity to express their character in public settings of risk, for example, on the battlefield, which essentially, until recently, no longer existed. For Goffman, gambling was not so much as an escape from everyday life as it was a bounded arena that mimicked the structure of real life, thereby immersing players in a demonstration of its possibilities. In other words, you're simulating real life over and over again through the experience of falsified chemical experiences in your brain that simulate the real activity of being stressed, being afraid, being in a tight spot, having repeated success, uh, having success when you need it. These things are all parts of stories and lived moments in your life, but in these situations, what they're really doing is they're simulating the act or memory or even the very chemical process that uh, determines how you feel about things. And when they've mastered the control of your chemical processes and can determine whether at certain points you need to win, succeed, lo- uh, lose, to be um, dragged along through the process, they will. And the algorithm only has to support the odds. But if the, if the tools are built into the odds, 
to have you win, succeed, and continue. Technically, this is all completely along uh, in line with the rules. I mean, realistically, ripping you off at the casino is written into the rules. And you know that, going into the casino. The house always wins might as well be printed in every single machine. I mean, everyone who's ever entered a casino has probably heard that term by then. Um, so everyone knows that going in. But we, uh, we still take the adventure. Hmm. The tension of action and choice is at the heart of cultural diagnosis made by the American sociologist Irving Goffman in 1967. <laughs> For Goffman, gambling was not so much as an escape from the everyday life as it was a bounded arena that mimicked the structure of real life, thereby immersing players in a demonstration of its possibilities. Along these lines, in 1973, the anthropologist Clifford Geertz famously interpreted the Balinese cockfighting gambling as a tournament of prestige that simulated the social matrix, and laid bare its status dynamics. The activity, he argued, served as a medium for rehearsing the collective and ex existential dramas of life. Like Calloway and Goffman, Geertz emphasized the synergistic interaction of randomness and competition in the cockfight. The less predictable the outcome of a match, he observed, the more financially and personally invested the participants came and the more financially and personally invested the participants became in the deeper their play, in the sense that the stakes went far beyond the material gain or loss. Back to those chemicals. And your willingness to get uh, bathed in them. Dostoevsky's description of a sudden windfall at a Swiss roulette table in The Gambler captures Geertz's idea of deep play as a compelling mix of chance, risk, and status. Why, I had got this at the risk of more than my life itself, but I had dared to risk it. And there I was once again a man among men. It's much like uh, putting your life at risk on the battlefield, or in a bar fight, for that matter. Calloway, Goffman, and Gertz each referred to coin-operated machine gambling in the course of their analyses, and each of them dismissed it as a degraded, asocial form of play not worthy of cultural analysis. <laughs> well, not everyone gets it right. For Calloway, it was pure alia, an absurd, compulsive game in which one could only lose, which is true to a degree, but also, I mean, that kind of perspective is the same reason, I believe. Well, I'm sure analysis has been done on it. Um, you can apply all this to, to the, I mean, you may be aware of, like, pachinko machines. You can apply pretty much all of all of this to pachinko machines as well if you'd like to contextualize um, gambling machines globally. Hmm. For Calloway, it, it was pure alia, an absurd compulsive game which one could only lose. For Goffman, it was a way for a person lacking social connections to, quote, demonstrate to other machines <laughs> that he was socially approved, he had socially approved of qualities of character. Machines stood in for people where there were, when there were none to engage with. Definitely doesn't remind you of video gaming. These naked little spasms of self occur at the end of the world, he wrote, of machine gambling in the very last line of his analysis. I agree. But there at the end is action and character. Geertz described slot machines as um, mm, 
These naked little spasms of the self occur at the end of the world, he wrote of machine gambling in the very last line of his analysis. But there at the end is action and character. Geertz describes slot machines as stupid mechanical cranks, operated by concessionaries at the outer circumference of the cockfight circle, offering mindless, sheer chance-type gambling that would be of interest only to, quote, women, children, adolescents, the extremely poor, the socially despised, and the personally idiosyncratic. Reminds me of Louis Thoreau's uh, gambling documentary he made back in the early, mid-2000s. Cockfighting men, he continued, will be ashamed to go anywhere near the machines. In other words, the devices were not a medium through which to become a man among men, as Dostoevsky had written of roulette, unlike the exquisitely absorbing affaire d'honneur of deep play. Slot play was shallow without a depth of meaning, investment, or consequence. Incapable of illuminating the fundamental codes and concerns of a culture, machine gambling was not a properly sociological, a properly sociological entity. Hmm. It was not a properly, quote, sociological entity, Geertz wrote. I should say that. The, the dramatic turn to machine gambling in American society and beyond since the 1980s prompts me to question such dismissals. Surely in this turn, one can find clues to the distinctive values, dispositions, and preoccupations of contemporary culture. But what kind of clues and how to access them? Unlike Goffman's card gaming or Geertz's cockfighting, machine gambling is not a symbolically profound or richly dimensional space whose depth can be plumbed to reveal enactment of larger social and existential dramas. Hmm. Someone spoke too soon. Instead, the solitary absorptive activity can suspend time, space, and monetary value, social roles, and sometimes even one's very sense of existence video gaming you can erase it all at times mm. you can erase it all at the mm. Mm. weird formatting you can erase it all at the machines you can even erase yourself an electronics technician named randall told me contradicting the popular understanding of gambling as an expression of the desire to get something for nothing he claimed to be after nothing is nothingness itself as molly put it earlier the point is to stay in a zone where, quote, nothing else matters. In his 2003 book on gambling in America, Something for Nothing, the cultural historian Jackson Lears approaches gambling as a, quote, port of entry into a broader territory, end quote, opening the book with a scene of machine gamblers who are so absorbed that they urinate into cups so as not to break the flow of their play. Yet these particular gamblers are in fact quite marginal to the analysis that follows, in which Lears argues that national character is defined by a sharp tension between its, quote, culture of chance, epitomized by the figure of the speculative confidence man, and its culture of control, epitomized by the disciplined, self-made adherent of the Protestant work ethic. As machine gamblers tell it, neither control, nor chance, nor the tension between the two drives their play. Their aim is not to win, but simply to continue. Hmm. This may well have been <laughs> written about so many different things. Sharon trained as a doctor, but working as a card dealer at the time we spoke, explained the value of continued play in terms of its capacity to keep chance at bay. Most people define gambling as pure chance, where you don't know the outcome. But at the machines, I do know. Either I'm going to win or I'm going to lose. I don't care if it takes coins or pays coins. The contract is what 
the contract is that when I put a new coin in, get five new cards, and press those buttons, I'm allowed to continue. So it isn't really a gamble at all. In fact, it's one of the few places I'm certain about anything. If I had ever believed that it was about chance, about variables that can make anything go in any given way at any time, then I would have been scared to death to gamble. If you can't rely on the machine, then you might as well be in the human world where you have no predictability either. In Sharon's narrative, the gambling machine is not a conduit of risk that allows for socially meaningful deep play or heroic release from safe and momentless, uh, from a safe and momentless life, to use the Goffin's phrase. I, I, I appreciate that phrase. In Sharon's narrative, the gambling machine is not a conduit of risk that allows for socially meaningful deep play or heroic release from a, quote, safe and momentless life, to use Goffman's phrase, but rather a reliable mechanism for securing a zone of insulation from a human world she experiences as capricious, discontentious, and insecure. The continuity of machine gambling holds a worldly holds worldly contingencies in a kind of abeyance, granting her an otherwise elusive zone of certainty, a zone that Molly described earlier as the, quote, eye of a storm. Players hang, it could be said, in a state of suspended animation, writes one machine gambling researcher. A zone in which time, space, and social identity are suspended in the mechanical rhythm of a repeating process that may seem an unpromising object for cultural analysis. Yet such a zone, I argue, can offer a window into the kinds of contingencies and anxieties that riddle contemporary American life and the kinds of technological encounters that individuals are likely to employ in the management of these contingencies and anxieties. Say it's the warning so far. Over the last two decades, social theorists have focused a great deal of attention on the leading role that technology has played in the production of broad-scale insecurities, from global warming and other catastrophic environmental disasters to financial crises and unstable job markets. While some have acknowledged the subjective insecurities that percolate through so-called uh, risk society as a result of manufactured uncertainties, as a sociologist Ulrich Beck had themed them, hmm. He also termed them that, really. Fewer have examined how individuals use technology to manufacture certainties of the sort that Sharon discussed above. Counterintuitively, machine gambling can serve as a port of entry, to borrow Lear's term, into this less examined but no less significant territory. Although the activity explicitly entails risk involving money, no less, a key measure of social and economic value, it contains that risk within a dependable framework, allowing gamblers to enact a mode of self-equilibration that has become typical of everyday technological interactions. Yes, the idea that we uh, believe that we are moderating ourselves and our behavior when in fact we are really not, which I would say is quite indicative of um, basically everything that we do from substances we consume to foods we consume to the amount of water we drink, we've always cons convinced ourselves that we have um, the appropriate amount of everything when really we're extremely good at uh, fooling ourselves into believing any value on any of those graphs um, can be anything at all in our head. And the older we get, the better we get at it, quite honestly. In a historical moment when transactions between humans and machines unfold at, quote, an ever greater level of intimacy on an ever greater scale, the sociologist Bruno Latour has written, computers, video games, mobile phones, iPods, and all 
editorialize um, just modern technological smart devices and the like have become a means through which individuals can manage their affective states and create a personal buffer zone against the uncertainties and worries of their world. Although interactive consumer devices are typically associated with new choices, connections, and forms of self-expression, they can also function to narrow choices, disconnect, and gain exit from the self. More than a case study of a singular addiction, and an exploration of gambling addicts' intensive involvement with gambling machines yields clues to the predic predicaments, tendencies, and challenges that characterize wider zones of life. I'm going to read one more page. A human-machine addiction. As the rise of interactional gadgetry has changed the nature of everyday life, so the rise of machine gambling has changed the face of gambling addiction. By the mid-1990s in Las Vegas, the vast majority attending local meetings of the self-help group Gamblers Anonymous, GA, played machines exclusively, a striking change from the 1980s and earlier when the typical GA member bet at cards or on sports. Although if I had to bet right now, I assume that the number one reason that people are probably getting into those groups probably has something to do with smartphone uh, betting. But that's just a hint. Currently in the treatment clinic, uh, mm, currently in the treatment center where I work, Bo Bernard reported on Robert Hunter's outpatient clinic in 2000, over 90% of individuals are in treatment for video gambling. He urged scholars to conduct research and how this swiftly spreading form of gambling might influence the acquisition of course and experience of gambling addiction. Yes. In other words, uh, even in the mid-1990s, they were already... Uh, no, 2000. By 2000, 90% of individuals were in treatment for video gambling. So already most people being treated for gambling in the 90s, so it has to be like almost 100% now. I mean, or if not. I mean, it's already significant at 90%. In other words, uh, these machines are ruining people's lives at a catastrophic level and have been since the mid-1990s, and uh, revenues have only gone up, and no one's doing anything about it. We're happy to have these uh, sources of revenue all over the place um, because we're not uh, funding the things that we should. I don't know. I, that's just my interpretation, but... What do I know? I'm just reading a book. Still today, however, the preponderance of research tends to concentrate on gamblers' motivations and psychiatric profiles rather than on the gambling formats in which they engaged. This tendency was reinforced by the American Psychiatrics Association's endorsement of the pathological gambling of, quote, pathological gambling as an official psychiatric diagnosis in 1980, which might be a little hyper-specific for something that's above, so broadly described in even academic works as uh, a broad experience of zones rather than strictly gambling but um that was 1980 the diagnosis soon to be renamed disordered gambling still a little hyper specific is associated with job loss debt bankruptcy divorce poor health incarceration and the highest rate of suicide attempts 20 percent among all the addictions its symptom 20 percent suicide in gambling addiction 20% suicide in gambling addiction. Its symptom criteria modeled on those of other addictions, including preoccupation, tolerance, loss of control, withdrawal, escape, and denial. 
Although previous psychiatric literature had described excessive gambling as a kind of mental illness, this literature, literature typically emphasized the toxic and debilitating effects of gambling itself rather than focusing on the gambler's dispositions. By contrast, the 1980 diagnosis presented the problem as persistent and recurrent maladaptive gaming behavior, emphasizing, which you could apply to today, emphasizing gambler's inability to resist internal impulses. Yep. If in the past all gambling had been considered potentially problematic, now there was a qualitative difference between normal and problem gambling, since problem gamblers were a discrete class of person and the rest of the population could gamble without cause for concern. Exactly. 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 Preoccupation. We're, we're defining some terms here. Preoccupation. Preoccupied with gambling, e.g. Example given. Reliving past gambling experiences, handicapping or planning the next venture, or thinking of ways to get money with which to gamble. Tolerance. Needs to gamble with increasing amounts of money to achieve desired excitement. So that's kind of universal. Loss of control. Made repeated unsuccessful attempts to control, cut back, or stop gambling. I would also, I mean, some people consider that like uh, bargaining with yourself, I suppose. Very similar to any addiction. Withdrawal, restless or irritable when attempting to cut down or stop gambling. Yes. Uh, any gamer who's ever had to get their shit together has had to deal with that. Escape. There's what you're doing. Gambles as a way of escaping from problems or of reliving... Excuse me. Escape. Gambles as a way of escaping from problems or relieving a dysphoric mood. Example. Feelings of helplessness, guilt, anxiety, or depression. Don't know that one. Chasing. After losing money gambling, often returns an to another day in order to get even. I've never lost at a uh, Battle Royale game and wanted to play again. Lying. Lies to family members, therapists, or others to conceal extent of gambling. Nope. Never done that. Illegal acts. Committed illegal acts, e.g. forgery, fraud, theft, embezzlement, to finance gambling. Definitely never... Uh, you know, downloaded anything without permission when I was a child to play as many games as possible. Risk relationships, jeopardized or lost a significant relationship, job, or educational or career opportunity because of gambling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bailout, relies on others to provide money to relieve a desperate financial situation caused by gambling. Mm-hmm. 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 Figure I-4, diagnostic criteria for pathological gambling of which an individual needs five or more to qualify for the diagnosis. American Psychiatric Association, DSM-4R, 2000. And if you don't know, the, di the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. While the medicalization of excessive gambling helps somewhat to undermine condemnations of gamblers as weak of will or morally compromised, ultimately it did lead more to... Uh, undermine condemnations of gambling vendors as purveyors of a socially and morally corrupting activity. The gambling industry has embraced the diagnosis and a suggestion that problematic play is confined, quote, confined to a small minority of constitutionally predisposed or mentally disordered problem gamblers. As one critic aptly puts it, the, quote, small minority in question is the 1 to 2% of the general population who fit the requisite diagnostic criteria at any given time, along with the three additional 3 to 4% who qualify for less severe Quote, problem gambling. Notwithstanding the significant complications or prevalence management, there is broad consensus among uh, around these figures among researchers. 
Yet many find it misleading to measure the problem within the general population, given the percentage of pathological and problem gamblers among the gambling population is a good deal higher, and higher still among regular or repeat gamblers. 20% by some estimates. Wow. Um, given the percentage of pathological problems. So our, our repeat customers are our people uh, gambling, living and gambling in Las Vegas. 20% of them are, so two-thirds are two-thirds of our two-thirds. 20% of those folks are relentlessly um, chemically addicted to, to know um, they're, they're stuck. They're stuck and they need help basically. Maybe they don't want help. By any count, problem and pathological gamblers are significantly overrepresented among those who gamble. The economic ramifications of this overrepresentation have been well established. From 30% to a staggering 60% of total gambling revenues have been found to derive from problem gamblers. These numbers tell a very different story than do measures of the problem in the general population. Which reminds me very much of Wales in the gaming space. Although whales typically refer to uh, people tracking from the sales perspective, but I would say in this case, it's probably just in, I would define it as people who spend money more for the experience of buying and collecting and, and, and vulturing up content than consuming. So that in which case your steam account, your Epic account, your Fortnite locker, your CSGO locker, the stuff that you'd keep jamming in there, um, without even really like touching or using or even, you know, the 2000 Steam games that you have in your account that you never even really touch or touched. You just buy during sales and whatever. Uh, it's the same thing. You're essentially just, um, you're, you're pushing the chemical button, which you, you probably know that by now. Um, but here's a reminder that it's been well studied and researched. This is nothing new. And you can go and read and know anything about it that you want. Um, it's uh, out there. You can help yourself. And I would say this, going even further, to quote the book, some researchers point out it is misleading to measure the problem by counting only those individuals who fit definitions for pathological or problem gambler, since most individuals who regularly gamble will at some point experience the hallmark features of problem gambling behavior, namely difficulty controlling time, time, and money spent on the activity with negative consequences. To ignore the continuum of problematic experience among gamblers is to minimize the extent of the phenomenon they suggest. Departing from the dominant medical emphasis on the psychological, genetic, and neurophysiological effects that might predispose an isolated subset of individuals to maladaptive gaming be gambling behavior. They seek to understand how commercial gambling activities and environments might create the conditions for and even encourage such behavior in consumers. Although, most screens for problem gambling do not distinguish among different types of gambling activities and environments, studies that take such distinctions into account consistently find that machine gambling is associated with the greatest harm to gamblers. Cool. The academic literature on electronic gambling is, with few exceptions, fault-finding. Write two scholars of gambling. While there is unanimity... Yeah, unanimity about the superior revenue generating capacity of electronic gambling machines for both the state and gambling revenue proprietors. There is also concurrence on the distress these machines can visit on the public. An increasing number of researchers, politicians, clinicians, and gamblers themselves have begun to raise the same question of gambling machines that is often asked of consumer products like cigarettes, alcohol, firearms, automobiles, and fatty foods. Are the problems in the product, the user, 
or their interaction. And I would raise all three. And also the profit driver of the situation. In 2002, the first... I definitely went more than one page when I said that. I promise I'm going to get to the end of this. I'm going to bookmark it. In 2002, the first in a line of studies found that individuals who regularly played video gambling devices became addicted three to four times more rapidly than other gamblers in one year versus three and a half years, even if they had regularly engaged in other forms of gambling in the past without problems. Rather than indicating a pathology in the gambler, impaired control and subsequent problem development are an understandable and natural consequence of regular high-intensity machine play, hypothesized the authors of another study. Endorsing this hypothesis, the Independent Federal Commission in Australia concluded in 2010 that, quote, the problems experienced by gamblers, many just ordinary consumers, are as much a consequence of the technology of the games, their accessibility, and the nature and conduct of venues as they are a consequence of the traits of the consumers themselves. In other words, they're saying environment is as much to blame as the any trait of the consumer. So environment the quality of the any qualities of the machine, etc. Although the gambling industry has energetically dismissed this conclusion as far-fetched and scientifically unwarranted, scientists have in fact long understood addiction to be a function of interaction between people and things. The potential for addiction, writes Howard Schaefer, a prominent academic researcher in the field of gambling addiction, emerges when repeated interaction with a specific object or array of objects, a drug, a game of chance, a computer, reliably produces a desirable subjective shift. Accordingly, he has suggested that the addiction researchers should emphasize the relationship instead of either of the attributes of the person either the attributes of the person struggling with addiction or the object of their addiction. Exactly. We need to look at the qualities on the ground. When addiction is regarded as a relationship that uh, develops through repeated interaction between a subject and an object, rather than a property that belongs solely to one or the other, it becomes clear that objects matter just as much as subjects. Yes, and and, and, uh, imagine if we're looking at, uh, imagine this, imagine the addiction, not as something that is possessed uh, within the user or caused by the uh, object in question. But imagine the vector connecting those two points. That is the addiction. The relationship that exists between you or the person and the substance or thing taking away your time or scenario involved, which is robbing you of your potentially free life. Um, that That is the issue being analyzed. It's always interesting to look at the things between things instead of the things. And I think I'm going to actually uh, break it up there. We read uh, 16 pages. That is more than enough. Highly suggest this book. Um, I'm going to read a little more from it later as I continue to dive into it. It is quite informative and extremely detailed. Um, it's exhaustive. I would put it in that. By the, I'm sure by the time you're done with this, you're going to know more about the darker side of the human brain than you would ever want to know. Um, yeah. Let me just uh, continue here. Take a little second here. Oh, we're at 107. Okay. I'm going to take a little tiny break. Um, let's see. 
Yeah. Here we go. We'll uh, listen to this along the way. Ireland sets base price on alcohol to curb use. It's by Isabella Kwai. This is from the January 5th issue of the New York Times. 
international section. And I saved it uh, for a day when I would uh, describe something about addiction. Um, and I'm going to read it now. Ireland's government imposed a minimum unit price on alcoholic beverages on Tuesday, one of a few nations to introduce such a rule as a public health measure intended to curb binge drinking and reduce alcohol-related health issues. The rule means stores, restaurants, and pubs must now sell drinks containing alcohol no less than about 10 cents per gram of the substance. Okay, so that's the minimum unit price. Officials said the measure was aimed at making cheaper, stronger alcoholic products uh, less readily available, particularly for young people and heavy drinkers. Quote, This measure is designed to reduce serious illness and death from alcohol consumption and to reduce the pressure on our health services from alcohol-related conditions, Stephen Donnelly, the nation's minister for public health, said in a statement. The rule requires a price of one euro, or $1.13, per standard drink. That means that a bottle of wine containing 12.5% alcohol, equivalent to about 7.4 standard drinks, for example, or three if you're feeling feeling it for example cannot be sold for less than seven dollars forty euros about eight dollars and 35 cents advocacy groups and public health experts called the measure part of legislation enacted in 2018 that included limitations on the labeling and marketing of alcoholic beverages an important step toward combating alcohol abuse in ireland the availability of such volumes of cheap drink in every community in ireland has to be tackled if we are hope if we hope to address the chronic level of alcohol-related harm. Professor Frank Murray, chair of Alcohol Action Ireland and Advocacy Group, said in a statement, On average, people in Ireland aged 15 and over drank the equivalent of 40 bottles of vodka, 113 bottles of wine, or 436 pints of beer in 2019. Excuse me. On average, people in Ireland aged 15 and over drank the equivalent of 40 bottles of vodka, 113 bottles of wine, or 436 pints of beer in 2019, according to Ireland's health services. Okay. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to skip to the part about beer. Um, on average, people in Ireland age 15 and over drank, on average, the equivalent of 436 pints of beer in 2019, and that was before the pandemic. And I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking anyone at that time. I was doing it up too. Sheena Hogan, chief executive of DrinkAware, the Irish charity, said the measure is a welcome one, but added that it is not a silver bullet and it needed to be combined with broader educational campaigns. It is another tool that can be used, she said. Though the new pricing would mean that drinks with high alcohol content currently being sold cheaply would go up in price, most premium brands would stay the same, she said. It's not the same as a price hike for all alcohol across all products. Some critics of the measure said it would unfairly penalize poorer people and those struggling with alcohol abuse. Well, uh, uh, prevention or, or cure. I'll continue. A flat tax of any kind, quote, is going to disproportionately affect families on the lower scale of the economic period, said Rosalind Nick Lachlan the student union president at National University of Ireland, Galway. It's not going, quote, it's not going to stop people buying alcohol. It's just going to push people further into poverty, especially people who live with addictions. There you go. Many students rushed to shops on Monday to stock up on cheaper alcohol before the measure came into effect, she said. 
Drinks Ireland, a lobbying group representing producers of Irish alcohol and brands, said retailers would be responsible for implementing the new law. As with any public Oh, quote, as with any new public health intervention, there will be a need to review and evaluate this policy measure for effectiveness. With the new rule, Ireland is following in the footsteps of neighbors like Scotland, which became the first nation to introduce minimum pricing for alcohol in 2018 and Wales in 2020. Experts say the impacts of minimum pricing on alcohol are still being examined. But researchers from the University of Sheffield and Public Health Scotland have already found the policy in Scotland led to significant decrease in alcohol consumption among those with a dependence on the substance, according to a report last year. Which it would, believe me. Um, it would have affected me. You can certainly have a debate over whether or not this is an appropriate use of government's public health power, said Matthew Lesh, a research fellow at the University of York. But he added that primary... Mm, Preliminary evidence show that the policy was effective at reducing alcohol consumption. The move was a significant breakthrough for public health advocates and indicated a growing consensus in Ireland that action needed to be taken to stem alcohol misuse and alcohol-related illnesses such as cirrhosis of the liver, Dr. Lesh said. He also added that other countries were also struggling with similar problems. This isn't just about Ireland. The world is very much watching, he said. It seems like they're... Looking forward to being the guinea pig for this um, project, which I think is um, an inspiring experiment. We'll probably read more at some point about uh, that. I assume some months will need to pass. Okay, let me see here. Just going to do a little... Fun reading to close it out. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. This is a copy of The Secret, a treasure hunt. The tale of the fair people, the mystery of their treasure, the whereabouts of their descendants. And um, it's written by, well... It's now maintained. It was written by a man. It is now, uh, let's see, I want to get his name correct. Uh, his name was, well, it's run by Byron Press now. It's actually written by a lot of people. Anyway, the point is, is this book is basically an unsolved scavenger hunt. If you'd like to know more, you can email bricktower at aol.com. Or telephone them at 212-427-7139. This is a book written in 1982 um, that basically uh, there are a bunch of treasures. The author uh, buried. He created an amazing scavenger hunt across the United States for all these treasures. And I think only like three of them, four of them have been found, something like that. They're everywhere. And this book is completely fascinating. Now, I, I remember talking to um, some people on Twitter about this. They found me. They word searched The Secret. Um, and surprisingly, they weren't talking about like the other secret. They were talking about this one and, uh, uh, they were kind of rude. So I never entered that community, but, um, I'm going to read you a little bit of this because it's nonsense, but it's fun nonsense. And maybe you can find the jewels. A long, long time ago, before the age when man and woman sailed in ships to lands they had never seen, there existed the old world. 
two empires, that of man and that of the fair people. Man named his abode civilization, for man was an acquisitive... Yes. Man named his abode civilization, for man was an acquisitive creature, and names were things he could possess. He did not fly on wings of gossamer, like a fairy, nor hide in the gentle slope of a mountain, like a giant, nor throw fire through a gust of wind, like a dragon. So man often found his strengths in words. The fair people had no cities, or towns, or houses. Their home was nature, and in it they could play, or hide, or make themselves unseen to man who feared nature for he could not control it. What man could not control, he often sought to change. Thus, over centuries, man has built his cities and his villages and diminished the fair people's domain. Where once lived a goblin, there rose a tavern. Where once swam a river maiden, a water wheel spun. Forest to lumber, earth to road, man expanded his empire and the fair people were threatened. From England to Cathay. Yeah. From Bristol to Bombay. There came a call from the fair people for a new home, untrammeled by civilization. Representatives of the fair people of the old world were sent to seek it. Elves, fairies, sprites, Folletti, Dunde. From thirteen lands they departed the old world to find a new one. And they did. You're about to read the fantastic passage of the fair people who, like man, arrived on the shores of the new world with dreams of freedom and contentment. You're about to learn their wonderstones, the twelve treasures brought with them in their passage to the newfound land. Diamond, ruby, pearl, amethyst, emerald, sapphire, peridot, garnet, topaz, aquamarine. And you will discover what happened when the fair people and man of the new world who shared their deep love for nature. Best of all, you will learn your role in the fair people's story and the significance of their quest for their treasure and the relationship between man and the fair people. Across North America, 12 treasures are waiting. The key to each requires the proper combination of one treasure painting with one treasure verse. You need only decipher the clues in any pair to learn the location of the treasure cask. In each cask waits a key. The return of the key will gain the treasure for you. If you are unable to retrieve the cask but believe you have determined its site, you may acquire the treasure by successfully completing a form in the back of the book with a precise description and ex explanation of your discovery. Any successful discovery of the treasure will be described in the next edition of The Secret. Finally, you will meet many of the modern descendants of the fair people who arrived in America's shores. You are cordially invited to inform us, in words or pictures, of your own sightings of the fair people, as yet unseen for inclusion in the next edition of The Secret. This is our story, simply told. The mystery is yours to unravel. The Passage to the New World The northern seas are cruel and... <laughs> the northern seas are cold and cruel gray. Across them sailed the fair, tall, elven folk. Southward the seas are blue, serene, and warm. From that soft mist, with many a merry joke, sweet spirits come. From west, at close of day, beneath sails brilliant as a peacock's fan, Ginny arrived. From sunrise and through storm, across the eastern ocean, last came man. Not so awfully long ago, as the stars who created time tell it, the fair people withdrew from the old world, which they called the Middle Kingdom, migrating across the ocean sea to dwell in the hills and forests of the newfound land. The first to set foot on its shore, if he said so himself in the saga he often sang, was Ruddy Alf, a copper-haired sea troll of Northland. It was he, he bragged, who left Scandia to brave alone the teeth of the hellhounds 
at sheer cliff's lip sheer cliff's lip of the flat earth's edge he the hero who pressed a single print from his reindeer hide boots onto the beach there and he who came back to harp on it next or simultaneously uh, or to hear his kin and clan tell of it years and years before was brandon a leprechaun from Kerry who zigzagged all the way from the tip of the dingle to the brave new world in a sealskin canoe with naught but poteen but for provender but most of the fair people deemed the exploits of alf and brandon to be mere myth even legends it seems uh look down on the legends and attributed the discovery of the newfound land to the italian fairy colon savellini savinelli an intrepidly nautical faletto out of genoa <laughs> savinelli had been commissioned by the queen of the iberian hadas that is the spanish phase to seek the fabulous spice islands once found i, w- I would also go back and repeat that uh history has now shown that the uh Alf the Brandon, Alf and Brandon were, were correct. They were there first. No more of the uh, Iberian Hadas to seek the fabulous Spice Islands. Once found, she hoped that they would become a foster homeland for her subjects, and indeed for all the fair people of the Middle Kingdom, whose era she feared was coming to its end. And it was. The, their brilliant art and their shining beauty, their power and their glory were flickering and fading, like firefly lights against the dawn, for the time of man had begun. Man, the unbelieving and unbelievable. Man, who hates and fears himself and thus despises every living thing. Man, the hewer of trees and spoiler of streams, whose fields and roads and walls are of a straight, unnatural geometry, who taught the very beasts to be dumb, fierce, clever, heavy-treading man, who, who with his weapons of forged iron had lately murdered, just for sport, what was believed to be the last and irreplaceable dragon. Word of Savinelli's success and the Spanish... Exodus ran like foxfire across the dying Middle Kingdom, somewhere in the west, where golden beaches, deep green woods, still pools, dark caves, and bottomless rivers, topless mountains, a fairyland. Hmm. There you go. The French were the first to follow. The tall, proud Hadas of Spain had already departed. However, reluctantly, with their diminutive domes, uh... <laughs> with their diminutive domestic relatives, the Duendes. From France came the sturdy seafaring Careds of Brittany, the nomadic shape-shifting Lutons of Normandy, Dames Blanche and Dame Blanche, uh, Dame Vert, coquettish maidens from the river valleys of Aquitaine, Lou Garot from the forests. All of these found refuge from the onslaught of man upon the chill and rocky northern coast of the newfound land across the sea. Forsaking the sun-tanned Riviera, water dracks, playful as porpoises, and the languid, amorous Fadas found contentment upon the hot southern shores of the New World, amongst pink, long-legged birds and high, swaying palms. Hello. In England, the erstwhile high-honored court of the fairy queen was now much diminished. Her majesty, Mab herself, and many of her subjects, pixies, hobgoblins, and boggarts alike, had shrunk to tiny size. Robin had been exiled to Sherwood. Right gladly did all that company hear news of a heaven in the west, and right swiftly they embarked therefore. The vulnerable Dutch merchant empire of the lowland Alvin was also in its autumn. Their sailor servants, the... 
Clawbot. Nope. Clawbouter mannequins made ready their broad bottom boats, and away they sailed to settle peaceably at length among rolling hills by a wide river richly lined with cliffs and trees. Clear running creeks they found there, and wildcats in abundance. Wherefore they named their new home Catterskill, Wildcat, Wildcat Creek. From Ayr, that most distressful country, the conquered and humbled knight, native gentry, the Sidda, set forth to follow in Brandon's path, accompanied on board by such of their lower-class countrymen as the shoemaking leprechauns and the endlessly joking, drunk, and disorderly Fur Derrigs, observed a moral Irish observer, Sir William Wilde. The fairies are retiring one by one from the habitations of man to the distant islands where the wild waves of the Atlantic raise their forming, uh, foaming crests. Lost to the Scottish Highlands, uh, then in Evermere was the Seely uh, Court, the fair folk known as Trows, Fawkins, Brownies, and People of Peace. As the tale is told, only two children marked their passing as the wee creatures rode their shaggy ponies down to the sea. The moral lad called out to the last rider, What are ye, little Manny? And where are ye going? Not of the race of Adam, said the creature, Turning for a moment in his saddle, the people, O oh peace, shall never be more seen in Scotland. Their rough-hewn barks were piloted west by silkies and kelpies over the sea, beyond sky to Nova Scotia. Down ice-green fjords of Scandinavia, and away to the land of the eagle, then sailed the Elefolk and their terrible, proud longships. The Nissen and the Tomtra, those hairy farm fairies, grims from the stone towers, squat, squinting wood and river trolls, and in the bows, faces set to the cold salt spray, the elves themselves, yellow hair streaming in the wind, blue-gray eyes fixed on the horizon. Of all the folk of Jotunheim, only some of the kobolds stayed behind, and these proud tree fairies were soon and forever turned to wooden playthings for the children of man. Guided in its stately way by the Rhine maidens, a great fleet bearing away strong thewed dwarves from the mines, plump and hairy witchkin. Hmm. I'm going to say witchin. From the fields, the handsome Wilden Fraulein from the marshes, and the red capped Hutchin from the Black Forest forsook Germany and her neighbors for the New World far across the sea. Then the east, from the far marches, from the wide snowy steppes and boundless fertile plains of Russia traveled the native fair folk, Vasily Palevsky, Domieve, and Vili. The Leshi abandoned the forest tops of Tatari, the Risalki uh, rose up from the riverbeds, and all followed the forest fathers and moss maidens across the winter prairie to the Black Seashore and onto waiting ships. Together they emigrated away to the west, cradling Italy. Calm as the clouded moon, dark as Tuscan wine, lay the Tyrrhenian, inmost sea of the Middle Kingdom. Upon its sleeping surface bobbed a motley flotilla of Folletti. Aboard were the Monicello, those rotund and randy monks of Naples, the Linicetti, the Lincetti, horse-teasing sprites from Lucca, snickering Barbara Boas, the peeping toms of Venice, the gay Farfarelli, so dear to Dante of Florence, 
uh, Parmadino, the fat gangsters from Genoa, stowed away in the hold, and even the even Hardy Salvani and Aguan, chief dwellers from the wintry Piedmont region. All the airless night they drifted until dawn showed over the Alpine hills. Suddenly, the impetuous Samascazzo, Winfoletti of Sardinia, filled their sails, and away they sped toward the Pillar of Hercules. And I'll, I'll stop there. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And these are um, essentially, it's a text. Um, if you scroll through the book a little bit, you're going to see some good pictures. And you're supposed to take these moments of story and attach them to photos and then collect from the artworks the precise location of treasure. Well, keys that will lead to treasure. It's quite fascinating. Uh, it still exists, and most of the treasure is still there to be found. So if you're feeling like you want a, uh, a modern um, scavenger hunt, that is for you. It lays in wait, and there's an entire community of rude assholes who will tell you um, that you don't know what you're talking about if you talk about it online. At least if you write about it in a text, which I'm not going to, because fuck them. But here, let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, yeah. Almost time, almost time. Okay. One more story. Totally off subject. All right. Change of heart. Annals of medicine. The first successful transplantation from pig to human may solve a donor shortage. By Rivka Galchin. In the early hours of January 7th, the cardiothoracic surgeon Bartley Griffith, unable to sleep, went to his kitchen to make coffee. It was about 2 a.m., his usual mug is tall, and he had to remove the stand from his Krups machine in order to fit it. Next thing I realized, I had coffee all over the floor. I had forgotten to put the cup, the cup under, Griffith told me. You get a bit wiggly, a bit superstitious, he asked himself. Do you know what you're about to do? Griffith has 40 years of surgical experience. But later that morning, he was scheduled to perform a surgery that would be unusual even for him. The world's first transplantation of a pig's heart into a human. Griffith's team at the University of Maryland Medical Center had received confirmation from the Food and Drug Administration only seven days earlier, and on the evening of December 31st, that the experimental surgery was approved. It was just two lines or so, Griffith said. It read, good luck with the surgery, but Griffith and his colleague Mohammed M. Muhuddin, who had jointly run the School of Medicine's cardiac xenotransplantation program, had been working together towards this goal for five years. Xenotransplantation is what we're talking. So then, we were there in the hospital on January 1st, thinking how to make this actually work. The medical center had to decide that it was willing to pay for the procedure. Insurance tends to not cover xenotransplantation. Okay. Well, at least not right now, since it's technically a completely experimental surgery. The patient, David Bennett, senior, a 57-year-old man with severe heart failure, had to undergo four psychiatric evaluations to make sure he could give consent. All the staff who might work on the experiment had to be given permission to opt out. So many people are involved with the care of a patient, Griffith said. We have a binder of 400 patients, or uh, 400 or so consents, people who wanted to participate. Muhuddin, who led the lab work that studied the transplantation of the pig heart, lives, a, lives an hour from the hospital. 
<laughs> there was a snowstorm on January 6th, so he spent the night on the sofa in his office. My wife has given up on me for a while. She knows that what I am going through, he told me. I spent 30 years just driving for this. On the morning of January 7th, he headed the surgery that extracted the heart from a year-old genetically modified pig, which had been raised at a facility in Virginia run by the company Revivacor. Revivacor is a spinoff of PPL Therapeutics known for making Dolly the Sheep, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell. Pigs have about 30,000 genes. Ten of those genes in the donor have been altered through a time-consuming gene-editing process. CRISPR technology has recently spread up the similar processes. And you can go read about CRISPR if you'd like. C-R-I-S-P-R. Go read up the Wikipedia for that. Blow your damn mind. Three genes largely responsible for making sugars that a human body would consider foreign were knocked out. A gene that controls how large and how fast the heart grows was also deleted. And six genes that help regulate antibody function, inflammation, and coagulation cycles in humans were knocked in. The pig heart is now, in theory, more likely to be taken on in the patient's body than as self rather than as foreign. In other words, uh, the chance of rejection much, much, much lower than typical. After Muhadeen's team extracted the pig heart, they placed it in a box resembling a high-end automatic bread maker. The box helps keep a transplant heart cold and metabolically active. It pumps a fluid through the heart that is made up of saline, cocaine, and a few other components. The box and the solution were developed by researchers in Sweden. Every time we import one of these boxes, I have to fill out special forms from the DEA, Muhadeen said. The cold pig heart was delivered to the operating room. Some people like to blast music in the OR, but I like to hear pins drop, Griffith said. I like to hear the sound of the heart and the lung machine. Griffith estimates that he has performed more than a thousand heart transplants, but this one called for a different start. Before he made the first incision, he suggested to everyone to pause for 30 seconds to, quote, think about what this man is entering into. He described the transplantation as an opportunity to learn. Griffith told me, we don't usually take a moment like that, but I think that it relaxed everyone, and we went to work. The process of transplanting a heart is both brutal and precise. An 8-inch incision is made in the chest. The breastbone is cut in half with a bone saw. The ribs are open outward to expose the heart. One large vein and one large artery are connected to tubes that uh, connect, connected by tubes to a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. A third tube washes the organ with a heart-stopping fluid. That's the beginning. The human heart being replaced was, of course, an ill one. It was dilated from being unable to pump properly. The cardiac chambers to which the pig heart would be attached were large. The team had to, st <laughs> had to stitch the small O of the pig part to a much larger O on the humans. Griffith was accustomed to making modifications, but less drastic ones. When he falls... Excuse me. When he first pulled the pig heart out of its container, it looked small and pale. It had an opaqueness that was off-putting, he said. I wondered, did we have to do something wacky? He connected the pig heart to the patient's vessels. He released the clamp, allowing human blood to flow into the organ. If it was as if... Hmm, hmm, it was as if we turned on a light, and it was a red light. The heart just brightened up, and it went from trembling to pumping. He demonstrated the movement with his hands. Hearts don't just squeeze when they beat, they kind of twist. In this heart, it was doing the hoochie-coochie. It was one of the best hearts I'd ever seen after transplantation. 
An Irish tale tells of a ruler who loses his arm in a battle. Once maimed, a king cannot rule, but a doctor shows up at the king's door. The doorkeeper, who is half blind, won't let him in. The doctor replaces the doorkeeper's blind eye with a cat's eye, curing his sight. The doctor then replaces the ruler's missing arm with a swine herd's. The doorkeeper with a cat's eye is said to stay awake at night thereafter, looking for mice. Have our feelings about the extraordinary weirdness of transplants changed much over the centuries? The history of transplantation has its horrors. In 18th century England, the poor would sell their teeth. The rich would have those teeth implanted. A reasonably eminent 12th century scientist transplanted second heads onto dogs. Huh. A reasonably eminent 12th century scientist transplanted second heads onto dogs. The physician Charles Edward Brown Sequard was thought by his neighbors to be a sorcerer. His backyard had chickens with rats' tails affixed to their heads and other mutilated and altered creatures. Brown Sequard made serious contributions to the field of neurology, and a syndrome is named for him, but he may be better remembered for having claimed at the age of 72 that injecting himself with parts of dog and guinea pig testicles had sexually revived him. For a few decades, gland grafting was all the rage, especially in France. In 1906, a French physician had two patients dying of kidney disease. He gave one a goat kidney and the other a pig kidney. Both kidneys lasted three days. It was years before even those dismissal results were matched. Doctors were working without any substantial knowledge of the human immune system and its role in accepting or rejecting transplants. It was as if one were trying to treat diabetes without knowing about insulin. Transplanting human parts, other than teeth and patches of skin, didn't really get going until the middle of the 12th century. 20. <laughs> no, they didn't do it in the middle of the 12th century. The middle of the 20th century. How could fresh organs be ethically obtained? A kidney, unlike a heart, had to be taken from a living donor, and kidney transplants developed earlier. The first kidney transplant, with long-term success, was performed on the identical twins Ronald and Richard Herrick, two days before Christmas in 1954 by Joseph Murray in Boston. Richard, the recipient, married one of the nurses who had cared for him, Ronald, with just one kidney, lived another 56 years. Murray performed kidney transplants in non-twin subjects for the next 10 years, but the patients didn't do well. It was only with the advent of effective immunosuppressants that had transplants began to work consistently. In 1990, 36 years after the twin transplant, Murray received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. More than 24,000 kidney transplants were performed in the United States in 2021, and more than 3,800 heart transplants. These surgeries are considered routine, and outcomes are generally very good. The median survival time following a heart transplant is about 12 years for kidney transplants. That number is nearing 20. Hmm. The median survival time following a heart transplant is about 12 years. For kidney transplants, that number is nearing 20 years. In the U.S., there are typically more than 3,000 people waiting for a heart and more than 90,000 people waiting for a kidney. The development of uniform uh, donor... Hmm. Wait. Uh, The development of the uniform donor card in the United States, a legal document that was recognized in all states, made organ donation more straightforward in the 1984 National Organ Transplant Act... NOTA, established some legal ethics for the field prohibiting the sale of organs and providing a framework for trying to distribute organs fairly. Well, that um, clearly uh, doesn't apply to certain parts of the world. 
In the United States, as of 2019, the rate of opting into organ donation is around 50%, although 90% of people express support for the idea. In some countries, people have to opt out rather than opt in. Spain has been a global leader in organ donation for decades. In addition to having an opt-out system, it trains professionals in talking to families about organ donation. Croatia adopted a similar model and raised its donation rate to one of the highest in the world. Japan has one of the lowest rates of organ donation, a situation in par- in attributed in part to Gotai Menzoku, a belief that the body should be intact. This idea connects to a fear that if a corpse is cremated without all its organs, it cannot be properly put to rest. Some Japanese stories feature a ghost whose head is separated from his body, and this is sometimes interpreted as a disturbed soul. I don't like the reading of that interpretation, or the writing of it. Uh, Muhuddin moved to the United States from Pakistan in 1991 when he was 26 to training cardiac surgery. His first mentor asked him to think about how many patients he could help as a cardiac surgeon and then asked what he would think if he was told about a field that would help a hundred times more patients. That was the first fish thrown at me, Muhuddin said. He began research work transplanting organs from hamsters to rats, and since then I have not looked back. There were long periods when funding for xenotransplantation research seemed almost non-existent. Muhuddin used to work at the National Institutes of Health. When, quote, when we went under, hmm, when we underwent the external review, which happens every five years, they said that we were doing, uh, what we were doing was a waste of time and we should be shut down, he said. He, well, I mean, uh, we're looking ahead. He secured outside support from Revivacor. Its CEO, Martine Rothblatt. I don't. Oh, Revivacor is now giving me uh, bad name vibes. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, its CEO, Martine Rothblatt, has a daughter with pulmonary ar- arterial hypertension, and the company has funded research in lung xenotransplantation. Not there yet. At his lab's next external review, Mohadeen said the assessment was glowing. It's difficult for him to explain to others, even his wife of nearly 30 years, exactly what he does. He says he asked her to just believe in him. Quote, This was not an easy road, he said. There were many occasions where I thought, did I make the right decision? Mohadeen's work eventually led to transplants of pig hearts into baboons. After 945 days, the baboons were still thriving. This work helped persuade the FDA to approve the recent heart transplantation. Pigs are a perfect xenotransplantation animal for several reasons. Their circulatory system is similar to the human one, their organs are about the right size, they grow up fast, they breed easily, and well, although they're as sweet and emotional as their pet dogs and often smarter, they aren't closely related to us. Muhuddin, however, is a religious Muslim. On his drive to and from work, he typically listens to the Quran and calls his mother, who lives in Karachi. For me, as a Muslim, of course, pork is a big no-no, he said. We don't eat pork or talk about pork. He encountered some resistance from his family when he began to work with pigs. Muhuddin said, I talked to religious leaders, not only Muslim leaders, but also Jewish and Christian leaders, about the consensus that was, uh, and the consensus is, and was, that saving lives takes precedence over everything. That is what I base my belief on, and that is what I am trying to do. Um, that what I am trying to do will help save lives. Using baboons in scientific research is itself anathema to many people. Protesters sometimes demanded uh, and demonstrated outside the NIH when Muhuddin worked there. His current lab has no direct entrance from the outside of the building, and there is security. 
1984, a baboon heart was transplanted into Baby Faye, an infant with congenital heart defects. Baby Faye lived for only 20 days afterward. One reason for the reaction was an unavoidable blood type incompatibility. There were no type O baboons available. The doctor who performed the procedure, Leonard Bailey, stated regarding the choice of a baboon that he did not believe in evolution. <laughs> the year after Baby Faye's procedure, Bailey transplanted a human heart into a four-day-old infant, Eddie Angui Anguiano, known as Baby Moses, who in 2014 visited the man who had transplanted his heart. In the late 1980s, Jane Goodall gave a talk to International Congress on xenografts. Quote, They're all... They were all talking happily about breeding pigs for xenotransplant, dogs, and so on, Goodall said. I felt like an alien in a world full of people with no empathy. The audience was moved by her speech. Baboons are now hardly, if ever, used as a source of organs, although they are still used in research. Muhuddin has been celebrated and criticized in Pakistan, where organ transplantation from dead people is relatively recent and rare. When David Bennett Jr. visited his father after the transplant, David Sr., in terrible pain, said desperately, I can't take this anymore. By the end of the day, the pain medications were working. David Jr. said he was able to say thank you to the doctors. There was a huge sigh of relief and peace to everyone. After the surgery, Griffith and Muhuddin had two worries that they were trying to balance, rejection and infection. Immunosuppressants could stave off rejection, but they left Bennett vulnerable to infection. Early on, abdominal infection required an additional surgery to clear. Later, Bennett had an unusual response to one of the immunosuppressants causing his white blood cell count to fall perilously low, and his medications were changed. The heart was beating too powerfully for its fragile new owner, and had, be, had to be chemically slowed. By the end of day 18, Bennett had outlived the first human heart transplant patient. By the end of the day, 21, uh, he had survived longer than baby Faye. That day, he remembered to wish Griffith a happy birthday. He was able to speak to his son on the telephone, something he had not been strong enough to do the 10 days before the transplant. My dad wants to go home, David Jr. said. He wants to see his dog, Lucky. Bennett had been on a heart machine for... Mm. Bennett had been on a heart-lung machine for months before the transplant, leaving him very weak. Even learning to stand on his own again would take some time. The transplants in Muhuddin's lab had been into young, healthy baboons. This transplant was a different experiment altogether. But Muhuddin noted, quote, We also know so much more about how Mr. Bennett is doing than we could ever know in the lab. Griffith said that in the early days when he went in to check on Bennett, he often could find ten experts outside his room collaborating on his care. Quote, there will be two infectious disease specialists, a transplantation pharmacist, an ICU nurse. It's such a team effort everyone wants to contribute to. Transplants of human organs and of pig organs may seem like very different procedures, but the problem of rejection is the central issue in both cases. Your body decides what is alien and what is self. If you get a tiny splinter, your body will likely mount an inflammatory reaction that extrudes it over time. If you get infected by a virus, your immune system will attack it. But it's tricky. The bacteria Helicobacter pylori can move into your gut and evade detection because it's camu it camouflages itself with surface sugars that resemble our own. In a disease such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, by contrast, the immune system erroneously attacks native cells as if they were invaders. If you think of immunity as a battle, which it basically is, H. pylori is a case of enemy soldiers wearing the uniforms of your own side. Lupus is your own soldiers being knocked out by friendly fire. 
There are several ways your body can reject an organ. Hyperacute rejection can happen within minutes of transplantation when the body has pre-existing anti-donor antibodies and has met this enemy or something similar before and is ready to attack immediately. In hyperacute rejection, large blood clots rapidly form, obstructing the blood supply of the donor organ. That is what would happen if a, quote, regular pig organ were used for transplant. All humans have roughly 1% of their antibodies devoted to attacking what are called alpha-gal sugars. Alpha. Uh, okay. Humans have roughly 1% of their antibodies devoted to attacking what are called alpha-gal sugars. Okay. Alpha-gal sugars. Most mammals have these sugars, but humans don't. The alpha-gal gene is one of those genes that were knocked out in the transplant pig. Besides gene editing, which become... Uh, which became predictable only recently and is not an option for donated human organs, the main approach to getting a patient's body to accept the, uh, the donor organ has been to suppress the immune system. This is dangerous. The first heart transplant that had some success took place in 1967 in South Africa. Thanks to immunosuppressants, the patient did not immediately reject the organ. Also because of immunosuppressants, the patient died of pneumonia 18 days later. Even when a recipient makes it past both hyperacute rejection and postoperative infections, transplant organs can fail later, owing to what is called chronic rejection, a process that is not entirely un yet understood. One pioneer of heart transplant surgery said, We were excited about sewing in the heart, which is, when you think about it, technically quite a simple plumbing job. The history of advances in transplantation is arguably more accurately understood, not as a history of surgery, but as a history of immunobiology. The transplant surgeons saw that rejected organs were infiltrated by cells. Trying to understand the mechanism prompted the tremendous boom in immuno... Immunobot... <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be as economical with your time as possible. The transplant surgeons saw that rejected organs were infiltrated by cells. Trying to understand the mechanism prompted the tremendous boom in immunobiology. To return to the limited but apt battle... Uh, analogy, immunobiology is the science that develops diplomats who suggest that there are alternative ways to respond to the presence of the foreign agent that there is a way to get along. Alan D. Kirk, a transplant surgeon in the Duke University Department of Surgery who has worked in the field for more than 30 years, said, in the 1970s, every transplant, was a, uh, every transplant case was like a miracle. To decide to be a transplant surgeon was like saying you wanted to be an astronaut. Until recent advances, he said, enthusiasm about xenotransplantation had not been scientifically justified. Quote, it was driven by companies who would drop a bunch of money without knowing about the science. But this is the first time that I can think the enthusiasm is scientifically credible. Kirk attributed the change to genetic engineering and to be better, uh, mm, uh, and to better immunosuppressive drugs. Uh, CRISPR has also made it logistically more reasonable to change all the genes you need to change, he said. And immunosuppressive drugs are not as brutal as they once were. We can make a more refined intervention. There are even some of those transplant patients walking around who no longer take any immunosuppressive drugs or who only take them once a month. At some point, their bodies learn to accept the foreign organ as self. The problem is that no one knows how it happened, Kirk said. Fascinating. Kirk then turned philosophical while ap apologizing for doing so. All of us were allogenic tumors at one point, he said. Allogenic refers to being foreign, but from the same species. That's called a fetus. Our mothers didn't reject us, at least not until we turned 13 and burned down the garage. 
So we know as a species how to not reject for the foreign organs. Our biology already knows how to do that, and we need to catch up, we being the immunobiologists. When news of the pig heart operation was announced, one transplant surgeon found it especially meaningful. Robert Montgomery, the director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute, had received a heart transplant in 2018. He had a genetically linked heart condition, which he had learned about when his brother Richard died suddenly at age 35. Montgomery, a surgical intern at the time, connected this to his father's death some years earlier from what was erroneously attributed to a virus-induced heart condition. Three of Robert's children have the same condition, as do Richard's two daughters. I met Montgomery on November 23rd, the day after he completed the transplant of a pig kidney to a human, the third such operation ever. The first had also been performed by Montgomery's team two months earlier. The University of Alabama at Birmingham did a similar operation in between. Montgomery had a mustache that made him look like Wyatt Earp, although it was less dramatic than the one he had before COVID. He had trimmed it for heightened hygiene protocols. Nikki Lawson, a transplant research nurse coordinator who had been on his team for almost two decades, two decades. I also didn't know that coordinator in the New York, uh, was this New Yorker? I don't even know what I'm reading. Yes. Uh, the New Yorker, uh, they have proper code for writing coordination. The second O has an umlaut above it. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a word or not. Uh, but we'll continue. I was so upset that I had to trim it. Uh-huh. Mustache. Brain dead. Human bodies. Shredding. All right. Last page. Kidneys were monitored for 50 hours after which the experiment ended. Okay. To do a trial in a living human, you need to know what's reasonable to believe the trial... Uh, to do a trial on a living human, you need to know that it's reasonable to believe the trial will give the patient overall a better outcome than not being in the trial, Montgomery said. People in need of a kidney are otherwise relatively healthy and have a decent chance of receiving a human kidney. People less likely to do well with a transplant are lower on the list, but it also means they are less likely to, to do well with an experimental procedure, such as a pig kidney transplant. In the case of pig heart transplants, the patient, David Bennett Sr., had been rejected by the several uh, by several centers for a heart transplant, owing in large part to a history of not being good about taking medications, a necessity for transplant success. In the case of a kidney transplant, many patients can be sustained by the dialysis, a miserable but often effective treatment. Of the pig heart transplant, Montgomery said, it was stunning. It was incredibly inspiring and exciting, and my nieces and kids called me. It was very personal in that way. The fourth of four boys, Montgomery, was seen by his elementary school teachers in undisciplined in a, as undisciplined and a slow learner. The nun called into my mom's to say she wouldn't expect the same from me as my brothers. Same exact thing that happened to me. Literally. They thought I was, they, they said I was uh, slow. Which I don't know. Maybe I am. Who knows? I'm just the guy reading the magazine. He was also, in his words, a magnet for wounded animals. Robins, squirrels, beavers. He was obsessed with trying to nurse creatures back to health. One year for Christmas, an older brother gave him a box of miniature tombstones, quote, with the names of all the creatures that had died under my care. His mother put him in a different school, but still had to work, had him work with some nuns who offered therapy of a sort. It was decided that the problem was that he had been a, quote, butt scooter. I had never crawled. So these nuns would get on the floor with me, and we would all crawl around. When he was 14, his father fell very ill with heart troubles. The family was told that only, the only thing that would save him was a heart transplant, a new procedure at the time, but that he was too old, 50, to qualify. Montgomery recalls doing his homework in his father's hospital room. 
Montgomery eventually became a better student, though as far as I know, no randomized controlled trials that can fairly assess the impact of the crawling therapy. He attended medical school at the University of Rochester and then started a surgical residency at John Hopkins. In his first year there, after his brother Richard died, Montgomery arranged to have a colleague in the pathology department of Hopkins examine his brother's heart. The colleague detected a familial dilated uh, detected familial dilated cardiomyopathy, or FDC. One aspect of FDC is sudden death. Another is episodes of ventricular tachycardia. Montgomery began to wonder how he could continue in the surgical field. He wasn't sick enough to qualify for a heart transplant, but he did have a defibrillator, defibrillator put in. One more time, that word is defibrillator. <laughs> it was just a dumb box, he said. If something sets the defibrillator off, administers a shock directly to the heart, the shock is so powerful that the fear of it going off is too much to bear. Some patients have told him, and they wanted theirs taken out. Montgomery took a break after his second year of residency to get a PhD in immunology at Oxford. He learned to live with the sword of Damocles and returned to his surgical training. I taught myself to stay calm, he said. Let's say I was going to give a talk in front of people. I would think to myself, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? That would be dying. That would be pretty bad. But everything below dying began to seem not so important. There you go. That's the way you live your life. But everything below dying began to not seem so important. That produced a, benef a benevolent cycle because I would perform better because I was relaxed. There you go. Montgomery began, uh, became a celebrated transplant surgeon. At Johns Hopkins, he was named the chief of transplant surgery and directed the team that developed the so-called domino kidney transplants. A fellow surgeon, Dory Segev, had studied computer science. One day, Montgomery was looking at their whiteboard of data on kidney patients and donors as a way of seeking out matches. I said, there must be a better way to do this. And Dory said to me, of course there is. That weekend, Sergeyev and his wife, Summer Gentry, who was an MIT mathematician, wrote a computer program, and not long afterwards, Hopkins began lining up multiple surgeries instead of a single swap. Imagine you want to donate a kidney to your partner, but you're not a match. In a domino transplant, several partner donors donate, and all the patients receive a kidney. But for purposes of matching, a donor's kidney goes to someone who doesn't, uh, she doesn't know, just as a partner receives a kidney from someone he doesn't know. In 2009, the Hopkins team did a 12-person multi-state procedure working in conjunction with hospitals in Oklahoma City and St. Louis. I was actually just uh, being informed about this in, in person. The team also helped expand the pool of kidneys and would be considered viable for transplantation. I had this colleague, so it was a 12, a 12 way, uh, it's a, they basically, they had a 12 way parlay swap and everyone won. Uh, the team also helped expand to get, to get back to sports betting. The team also helped expand the pool of kidneys that would be considered viable for transplantation. I had this colleague, Naraj Desai, and he was very early thinking about, what if we used hep C positive kidneys? Montgomery recalled, every year hundreds of organs were deemed unusable because their donors had hepatitis C. This was when there was early treatment for hep C, but it wasn't very effective, Montgomery said. But for a couple years later, antiviral drugs were developed that could cure hepatitis C. Desai's idea had come of age. A trial was conducted of patients who would otherwise not have received kidneys, but were consented to receive hep C-positive organs and were subsequently treated for hep C. Later, the trial was ex extended to hep C-positive hearts. Four years ago, Montgomery received a hep C-positive heart. I think I was the 17th patient in the trial, he said. If I'm going to ask others to do it, I have to be willing to do it myself. An unexpected reprieve from mortality 
The most poignant example of, of this comes to mind. The most poignant example of this that comes to mind is the one in which it is a pig whose life is indefinitely spared. In Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, Charlotte, a spider, makes Wilbur, the pig, more valuable to the farmer as a beloved individual than his pork. Charlotte, though having completed her egg sac, will die very soon in the natural cycle to which her species is condemned. She says to her friend, Christmas will come, then the snows of winter. You will live to enjoy the beauty of the frozen world, for you mean a great deal to Zuckerman, and he will not harm you ever. Winter will pass, the days will lengthen, the ice will melt in the pasture pond, the song sparrow will return and sing, the frogs will awake, the warm wind will blow again. All these sights and sounds and smells will be yours to enjoy, Wilbur. And that's all I have from the February 28th uh, issue of um, <laughs> The New Yorker. Once again, written by Rivka Galkin. And uh, I think that's it for this episode. We're running up a little over two hours. I'm going to close you out with one more tune. Let's see if I covered all the... Um, God, I didn't even get into the two two of the main things I wanted to get into. Wow. So we got another four episodes outlined. So they'll be coming at you hot and fast. I intended this one to only be a minute 10, and it turned out to be 2.05. And by the time I'm done, double that time, you know, 2.20 probably. So, uh, yeah. Well, enjoy this episode. I hope you did. Call uh, 505-557-7932 if you made it all the way through the end. I appreciate you making it all the way to the end. And to reward you uh, for making it all the way to the end, I'm going to play a little something for you that, uh, well, I think about this relatively often. And in a world of things that are changing all the time, why not revisit a favorite? Yeah, here we go. I'll see you next time. Stop.